Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to episode 206 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor. And I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Oh, we're just early into March Madness. Happy NCAA Tournament Fever to those who celebrate. And happy World Baseball Classic to those who celebrate, except for Mets fans <laughs> except and Edwin for Mets Diaz. Fans. Mostly except Oof. for Mets fans. And, Ouch. And for people who drafted their fantasy baseball teams uh, early this year and who still are in leagues that value saves, I suppose. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. yes, you don't... I mean, look, like... <sighs> On the list of stupid ways that people get injured, this is pretty low. Like, I understand the reason why this was meaningful to them. This is not like one of those, yay, I won a video game and I punched a wall and, and I broke my hand and I lost a season. This was this was a big game for them. This was, this was all about pride. Everyone was happy. But good gracious, you don't want to have that happen. Yeah. Surgery out for the season. Anyway, enough about baseball. We're still coming up a couple of weeks away from the from opening day. I am pumped, and maybe we'll talk about it coming up in a couple of episodes, or maybe not. I have no idea. But one thing I do know that we're going to talk about is the week's big headlines. Number one. Leading off, True Detective stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are reuniting, and it feels so good, at Apple for a comedy series in which the stars and their families live together at McConaughey's Texas Ranch. Sure, why not? The series hails from David West Reed, a veteran of Schitt's Creek and creator of Apple's upcoming comedy, The Big Door Prize. Next up, Amazon has given an early renewal to the global spy thriller Citadel. Yes, the $160 million show that has already changed showrunners, already changed directors, and also done what sources say was $75 million in additional reshoots. Oh, my. In other news, sources tell me the retail giant and streamer has has renewed a league of their own for what sources say is an abbreviated four-episode second and final season that will be billed as a limited series. So Amazon declined comment because, well, deals are not done. Sources tell me that basically the entire cast and creatives have to sign new contracts because of the abbreviated episode length. So this is four episodes, which is half as many as as there were in season one and half as many that are included in their contracts for the show. So that's what the holdup is. Meanwhile, fans on Twitter have not reacted kindly to the news because, well, and I'm biased here too because I loved the show. And if there was a show that really 
define my brand. It's this. Uh, it deserves more. There's, you know, you said it in your tweet, Dan. You know, our, our colleague Rick Porter said Amazon gets the E on this one uh, in baseball terms, gets the big error on this one because this is a world that's got a lot of storytelling left in it. And also kind of it, it feels fundamentally condescending because to give a show four episodes, it's like, okay, here, take this and shut up. <laughs> it doesn't feel like anything other than that to me because it's not like the first season ended on on a cliffhanger where they had to resolve the cliffhanger. And it's not like it had big mysteries that needed to be solved. So it's not like they're saying, okay, we're making sure that you get the resolution you desire. It's no, people have been clamoring for it and we don't want to give it a full season, but sure, have a few episodes. Is that enough? And it, it just is a strange strategy. And uh, and meanwhile, Citadel has yeah. already cost north of $200 million. They spent probably half a billion on Lord of the Rings when you when you include promotion and marketing and everything else there. They just spent who knows how much money on Tomb Raider rights, which I heard, you know, sources told me the deal for Tomb Raider was the second most that they'd ever spent right behind Lord of the Rings. And again, you haven't even started production on anything yet. So these are all big spending things that Amazon's doing and League of Their Own, which is a good, you know, if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, reviews are strong, obviously has a big social following, has won a lot of awards from groups like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD. Four episodes. Yeah, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure that anyone listening to us who's a fan of League of Their Own uh, listened to you talking about the possibility of $75 million in reshoots on Citadel and went, <laughs> because unlike Lord of the Rings, where at least you understand exactly what the brand is, exactly what the what the sprawl of the brand is, Citadel, it's an original global spy thriller, but whatever it is, it's an unproven property. And so but they're trying yeah. to turn this from the Russo brothers into a massive franchise. There's already a local version of, of the show in the works in India and conceptually what they're trying to do with Citadel is launch this big global hit where you've got a bit two big stars and Priyanka, Chopra, Jonas, and Richard Madden, obviously fans that cater to multiple countries and territories, but they want this to be like the hub and have different spinoffs in different regions that all connect to it. So it's basically a Marvel-like franchise that has global appeal and is what they're trying to do here. But that's also a lot of money. But also has no recognizable IP right. to anchor it. Uh, I did a panel with the head of the Russo's production company at, at ATX. It was a, an IP panel. And we talked a bit about the idea of doing something with that show that felt like it was IP, but was actually original, sort of that followed the IP franchising plan. And as you say, the plan was always from the beginning to have a, a large number of international spinoffs that were put into development before the first one even premiered, obviously. It's, it is unquestionably a fascinating attempt to do something that they're doing with Citadel. I'm only saying that if you're a fan of, of uh, League of Their Own and you hear that another show got $75 million for uh, reshoots, that you're going to scratch your head. No, I, you know, I haven't seen a second of I haven't even watched. Was there a trailer yeah. for Citadel? I haven't seen yeah, a second. Yeah, there's some footage of it. out. Yeah, I haven't seen a second of it, so I, I know absolutely nothing about its quality. I'm only saying what the reaction would be if I were a a dedicated League of Their Own fan, hearing various numbers. But anyway, I, you know, it, so even if it's condescending, or even if it's not, four is better than nothing. And maybe if there's sufficient mobilizing on Twitter, and the four are 
wildly successful, maybe there's a chance for. Yeah, fan, fans, meanwhile, uh, are set to, they, they've uh, paid for a plane carrying a banner attached to the end of it that says, <sighs> renew a league of their own, more than four. Uh, that's going to fly over Amazon Studios headquarters I, in here in Southern I, California. I, look, fans, fans got to do what fans got to do, but I have never once heard an example of one of those, we hired a plane things where I went, yes, that was the best use of people's resources, whether it was whoever the fans were who had the plane flyover press tour for, was it the Borgias? There was something really strange. And then at South by Southwest, there was a plane flyover uh, from Zack Snyder fans, something about the Snyderverse. It's just to me, of all the strategies in the world, that is not one that has ever felt like the best use of resources. But Yeah, but at the same time, it's not like we're going to use those resources. And I say we because, you know, I haven't contributed to the plane campaign or any of that <laughs> other stuff, but I do consider myself a fan of League of Their Own. Obviously, that goes without saying. I think if you know me, <laughs> of course I am. Well, it goes without saying. But it's like, you said, we're not going to send... I know, I said it like a hundred times. You said it five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, but like... Well, I'm not like fans shouldn't send money to Amazon or to Sony to help support the new one. I mean, then again, I mean, what didn't what, what was it? The Veronica Mars movie was done via Kickstarter. But you're like sending money to these literal millionaires. Right. Yeah, I mean, no, it, like that's that's not the solution. These companies don't need your sure. money. The companies what they're saying is we don't want to spend our money on this because for whatever reason, hidden under the the cloud of who the fuck knows about streaming ratings in our year of 2023, we don't believe in this show anymore or they do but they to a limited cost or they're sitting here going like oh well we got to find another 75 million somewhere to, to send over to citadel because we really need that to work but we know that you know our viewership on league of their own or who knows i mean i don't know i'm grasping at straws just like everyone else and i reported the damn story continuing along speaking of uh of beloved shows that are getting Small reboots or returns. Tony Shalhoub is back on the case at Peacock, which has ordered a movie based on the beloved and Emmy-winning hit Monk. It will be titled Mr. Monk's Last Case. Guess what? If it's successful, I bet it will not be. Yep. Uh, his last case, I mean, not successful. I'm sure it will be successful. People, <laughs> people love them some Monk. It's a little bit like Psych. You can keep making those movies and and the, the fans will come out. And also makes you sad. All of those shows at USA that had those really, really passionate audiences, and now USA is out of that business entirely. In other Peacock news, the streamer has renewed Days of Our Lives for two additional seasons, which will take it through season 60, Suck It, The Simpsons. <laughs> Solid, Dan. Elsewhere at Disney+, Plus, they've canceled Willow after a single season, with the move coming two months after the show premiered to warm reviews and after the streamer has recently scrapped other shows, including The Mighty Ducks, Game Changers, and Big Shot. Homeland duo Howard Gordon and Alex Ganza are heading back to Showtime with a series take on Gattaca, which feels very much to me like an extension of the strange IP choices that Showtime was making in its previous regime. But what do I know? Yeah, this uh, sources say that Chris McCarthy, who recently, of course, added oversight of Showtime, is a big fan of Gattaca and he has big franchise hopes for this one. So Showtime, of course, declined, declined to comment because deals are not done. I mean, Gattaca's a 
Gattaca's a good movie. It's a it's a smart and thoughtful piece of hard sci-fi. I have no objections to Gattaca, and I know it has obviously built a fandom over the years, but it's not like it was the biggest hit in the world, and it's not like people have been necessarily clamoring for it. But again, it is it is a good movie with an interesting world and no reason for them not to try it, I guess. Yep. And wrapping up headlines with some castings, Jason Ritter has joined Kathy Bates in the CBS update of Matlock. And Judy Greer will star opposite Ellie Kemper in the ABC comedy Drop Off after, of course, Hulu canceled reboot after one season. Up next. Number two. The Oscars are in the books, and as was expected, everything, everywhere, all at once was the night's big winner, as the ceremony saw not one, but two former stars of Encino Man take home Oscar gold. Jimmy Kimmel hosted. I thought it was, honestly, I, I watched most of the show. I did take a break to uh, switch over and watch the Last of Us finale in the middle of it, and obviously we'll get to the Last of Us in our next segment, but Dan, I thought it was kind of an upbeat ceremony. There were no big surprises. Obviously, nobody got slapped. People did joke about it, of course. But I, I, I don't know. It felt like the, the Oscars that we kind of needed. What did you think? I, I think I think that's exactly right. I, th- I think it was definitely the Oscars that, well, whether whether it was the Oscars we needed or whether it was the Oscars they needed is a different question. I think it's the, on the Ted Lasso <laughs> of Academy Awards. I think it is definitely the Oscars that the Academy needed. It is definitely the Oscars that ABC needed. And that can be seen in the fact that ratings were comfortably up from last year. Uh, 18.7 million, 18.76 million viewers. Uh, yeah, it was a three year high, nearly 19 million total viewers. That's the most for any award show since the 2020 Oscars that were held mere weeks before the pandemic, well, waves hands at everything, changed everything. And, uh, you know, of course, the other way of looking at it is that it is still the third smallest audience ever for the Oscars, I believe, uh, Rick Porter said in his story. The great Rick Porter, yeah. But still, uh, that's still improvement. And they needed basically, they needed an Oscars telecast that moved smoothly, that didn't have anything horrifying and disgraceful, Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this did not. And so I I thought it was full of very good moments. Most of the very good moments, as always on a show like this, did stem from the winners and the particular emotions. I don't know. I definitely am pretty sure that I've never seen an awards telecast in which so many of the winners were reduced to tears in the process of accepting their awards but also were probably as legitimately entitled to those tears as anyone would be under those circumstances. I just, if you look at the journeys that the four winning actors have had, uh, you know, in, in the cases of uh, Ki Hui Kwan and uh, Brendan Fraser, sort of from different degrees of, of obscurity. Uh, in Sino you know, Man stars that I was referring to naturally. Indeed. Uh, Sean Astin, you're next, I suppose. Um, Everyone else saying Polly Shore. I think Sean Aspen. Yeah. There's a much better chance if we're being honest. Yeah, nothing uh, for the weasel. Sorry, <laughs> but the, but still, you you look at the careers that those guys have had from varying degrees of blowing up and being huge. You know, Brendan Fraser was a, a huge star, and and Kehui Kwan was was a, a large star before he was you know old enough to drive, which is remarkable. And both were counted out to varying degrees, and I can understand why they'd get emotional about this. And in the case of Michelle Yeoh, obviously, massive star, and and massive star over decades, not like she ever extinguished. But 
you can understand why she never would have expected this to happen after she hit a certain point in her career. I can see why she would get emotional. And then Jamie Lee Curtis, who was probably the biggest surprise of the acting winners, you know, her career is just a totally unique thing. She is, as she's joked frequently, she's a Nepo baby. She's from Hollywood royalty. She's been a movie star of varying kinds. She's been a comedy star. She's been a horror star. But I don't know that at any point, certainly not in recent years, anyone thought she was going to be an Oscar winner. And there she is. So all of those people were extremely emotional. And I totally get it. Their speeches were all excellent. Uh, the the Daniels, the the directors and writers of of Everything Everywhere, they were really good. And so there was all of that. I thought that Jimmy Kimmel did a solid job. I don't think that anyone is going to really be remembering much from his monologue down the road. I think probably from his in-show performance, probably people are going to remember even less. Uh, There was the really bad piece of audience work with Malala and Jessica Chastain and Colin Farrell. That was a dud, but it wasn't a dud of the sort that people are going to be... Basically, no one read the wrong envelope. No one slapped anyone. It was not a disgraceful. Yeah, he didn't step over anyone on stage, or you know, or have to pretend to play dead and be and issue an apology. But yeah, indeed. So all of the things that could have gone horribly wrong, none of them did. I thought there were good musical performances. Obviously, with Natu Natu as the top of them. Etc. So I, I, this is this is the kind of Oscars telecast that they needed. Maybe next year they can go back to something more risky or more edgy or whatever. This they needed something. I was going to say they needed something that was going to go smoothly and run on time. It definitely did not run on time. They never do. But they Just never, never. do. So I, I thought it was pretty good and and not surprised that uh, that the ratings were a little bit up. Uh, People will be like, okay, well, but it's still down from 30 million and still down from 40 million. The the barn door's open. You're not going to get the cows back in. It's too late. The way people watch television has changed. The, the, the odds of anything getting that number outside of the Super Bowl, good luck. Yeah, no, it's it's not going to happen. And and this year there was there were a lot of sort of perfect storms. They they had the two movies that were two plus billion dollar global blockbusters that were nominated for best picture. That kind of that obviously helped people dig that. They had big stars doing musical performances with Lady Gaga and Rihanna. That obviously helps. There there were many different factors. And it would definitely not surprise me if next year, if they don't have a Top Gun or an Avatar, if they don't have a Lady Gaga or a Rihanna, if the ratings went down again, that's the nature of the beast. But the fact that they could have gone up at all is, you know, it's obviously a good thing. So, yay, I suppose. Number three. Up next this week, HBO's The Last of Us wrapped its first season with a harrowing finale that, despite going head-to-head with the Oscars, still set a series high in viewership. Joining us for a season in review look at the first season of the video game drama is friend of the five, the OG, the one and only Shannon O'Connor, a social media editor and writer for the Daily Beast who covered the show for the site and Daily Beast Obsessed. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. You know, longtime fan, longtime friend of the five, finally guest of the five. Absolutely. Woo-hoo. You 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 are one of the OG friends of the five, so it is very good to actually have you with us. I'm so excited. This is awesome. And I get to talk about The Last of Us, which we all know is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> so as we've done with season and review segments in the past, consider this 
your spoiler warning if you haven't watched the complete season of The Last of Us, as we will be talking about the events of the finale, as well as the events of the first and probably a little bit of the second video game. So, Shannon, first of all, just so excited to have you on. And, you know, as we get underway, here's our disclaimer. Neither Dan or I are familiar with The Last of Us video games, but as I understand it, in the games, in the, and then finale, Joel made a choice in the finale that effectively sets up season two. What can you tell us about how the finale compared with the end of the first game? Were there major departures? Was it just scene for scene? Like, what can you what can you tell us? It's pretty much scene for scene. Literally, I had to, you know, tell people because people were like kind of shocked how it kind of ends pretty abruptly, I would say, for some people um, with just that final shot on Ellie's face. But that is exactly how the first game ends, too. It just kind of ends there with her saying, okay, and then it cuts to, like, the credits. Um, and it's it's wild, and, uh, it, it, like, you know, you've been through, through so much in, in the game at that point. You've been playing for hours, and you kind of get to this point where you've, you know, as you see, like, the whole journey was kind of, you know, a wash because, like, it, it didn't end up happening. Like, they didn't end up you know, sacrificing her for the cure, you know. Uh, so it it is this kind of abrupt ending, but it does bring a lot of questions. And obviously it sets up a lot of questions for, you know, part two or what will be season two and probably three because they said that they're going to kind of drag the second game out into a few seasons. Um, but yeah, so it, in terms of whether it was scene for scene, yes, it was scene for scene. Like, uh, I mean, obviously they're, is a lot of elements that can't be replicated in TV shows in terms of like gameplay. But a lot of that, like with the Joel going on the rampage and like shooting people through the hospital, you play that part and it can be short or long depending on how many times you die. <laughs> but uh, it, it is just as kind of intense and harrowing. But it's also, there's this element of like, you've made it to this point and you've done all of this and you've played so much and you're just kind of like, we made it to the Fireflies. Oh, finally, I can kind of like rest and watch this cut scene. And it's like, nope, you have to continue going on. So it's kind of this this feeling of like, it, it just a, a never ending journey, but it, it adds to the emotional punch, I think, in the game um, where you have to keep going because you're kind of already exhausted and you just have to keep going and you kind of feel like Joel because he's exhausted. He's done this whole journey. He's brought her to this hospital. He's done what he was supposed to do. And then now they have dropped this bomb on him and he can't sit still with it. Um, and it, I think that that aspect makes you also kind of feel more for him and kind of understand his side of things. I need to be sort of the ignorant video game person. And Leslie mentioned, of course, that neither of us on this podcast are video game fans, which is why throughout my watching of the nine episodes, I was constantly pestering Shannon to give me information, uh, which Shannon gave very readily. Um, when I played video games as a kid, the destination was fairly straightforward. You got to Mike Tyson, you beat Mike Tyson, you saved the princess, whatever it was. So, okay, in the video game, what is it that you're actually doing at the end, I understand you're going through shooting people to get Ellie out, but is there a choice? Can Do you get to tell Ellie different things at the end? What is the participatory element of the end of the, of the game and the show? No, you don't have a choice. Um, <laughs> basically, no. That's one of the, the things about The Last of Us that's so interesting to me and, and an element that's so interesting in both part one and part two is that you 
don't really have a choice. You do what the story wants you to do, whether you like it or not. And that is really interesting to me because it really makes you question the things that you have to do and not like the things. This is a thing that definitely is more in part two, that you have to do a lot of things that you do not want to do and they force you to do it. And it's kind of an interesting um, exercise, especially in part two, in like perspective and, and, you know, um, seeing a decision through somebody else's eyes and may not exactly be your decision. But yes, in the video game, there is no, you don't have like, there's no decision to make. You have to, um, even uh, this is, you have to kill the doctor. Like there is no way around it. If you try to not kill the doctor, uh, the doctor will stab you with a scalpel. (laughs) So you have to. Um, and again, like, I mean, we did say that there was like, you know, possible spoilers for part two, that doctor is going to be important in part two. So that is, um, why you have to kill the doctor. So, (laughs) um, just, you know, as a, a hint, hint. Um, but, uh, yeah, as in terms of like, you know, telling Ellie anything like, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're referring to the lie, if you're like, you know, saying like, is there a choice between telling her the truth or telling her a lie? No, that's all a cutscene. You don't get to play any of that. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, honestly, that it translates so well into television too, is because the cutscenes are themselves very cinematic in the game and kind of very, you know, tailor-made for television. Um, so yes, that there was not, not really a choice that you could make. Uh, you kind of have to watch it all unfold and then deal with the feelings afterwards, um, which is kind of exciting. And I, I do think that there is a different element to watching it and playing it. I kind of very much view the show and the game as two very separate things with very similar narrative beats. Um, but like the in-between of how you get to those narrative beats are different in both. And that's really fun. And, um, but I think they both have the same, you know, punch of, you know, the weight of Joel's decision and then the weight of Joel's lie, which are two different things. I think that those two different things, you can agree with one and not agree with the other, which is kind of how I feel. Yeah. Dan, what about you? What did you think of the choice that Joel made in the finale? I think it's, it's it's clearly meant to be exactly as as conflicted as Shannon just made it sound. It's the right choice in terms of the two characters who you've grown to love over the course of either playing the game or these nine episodes. And his telling Ellie the story of his daughter's death and his own suicide attempt it underlines that Ellie gave Joel a reason to live again. And so Ellie giving Joel a reason to live again, it makes sense that he would not want to have that reason to live again taken away from him. On the other hand, he killed a bunch of people who the only thing they wanted to be doing in that case was trying to save the world. And I've seen, I feel like it was a Slate article or something that wanted to emphasize that there was no logic whatsoever to the the medical theory of what they were going to do to Ellie. And so if you want to believe that Joel had some sort of knowledge and was able to go, no, that makes no medical sense. You can't make a vaccine out of out of my surrogate daughter's brain fungus or whatever it is. This won't work. So I'm going to kill you. You can go, Okay, well, he's really smart. He did that. But I don't think you can say that. From the perspective of these characters, basically, he made a choice and the choice was to save one person at the potential cost of saving humanity. And you have to always scratch your head about that. 
But also, we spent the last eight or nine episodes discovering that humanity is kind of a shit show to begin with. So maybe, maybe saving them doesn't make any sense. So it it was conflicted in all the ways it was supposed to. I did think that the last episode was fairly rushed. I thought it only 44 minutes. It really felt like they skipped a lot of beats. And I know that, Shannon, you've mentioned that there were a lot of things that could have fleshed it out if they'd kept them from the games. What Did you miss any of them in particular? Or do you understand the absence of the things that they trimmed? I understand the absence of the things that they trimmed, because a lot of the stuff that they trimmed was um, like gameplay stuff. But I think because kind of that last chapter, what they did, they kind of combined two chapters, which is like the bus stop. And um, we saw that in the beginning of w- when they're kind of like walking through the abandoned cars and talking and Ellie's kind of ca- catatonic after the David incident. And then there's the last chapter, the well, last chapter, then the epilogue, um, which is the hospital. And then the, you know, the conversation that they have on, on the hill. But the bus stop, they really kind of went through quickly um but that is a lot of of, of gameplay there is a whole section there that you have to um kind of fight a lot of infected it's like the last big infected um fight that you have to do it's kind of tedious and not fun sometimes (laughs) but it it can be like when you die a hundred times it's not as fun um but uh it, it is a really good really good part and then they kind of changed the fact that they ambush them in this like kind of makeshift old like Frederick like medical tent camp in the show. In the game, uh, Joel and Ellie are like um, trying to get to the hospital and they're getting closer and closer and they kind of get to this part where they have to walk on top of these like, I guess like air ducts and are trying to get across this like rushing water. And of course, because it's the last of us and everything has to, you know, throw in a complication here and there. Um, like, you know, the stuff starts to break down because it's an, you know, apocalyptic world and everything is not structurally sound. Uh, So they end up falling into the water. And as we know, Ellie can't swim. So she starts to like drown and he like pulls her up and saves her. And then that's when the fireflies come in and like, she's unconscious after, you know, almost drowning. And then he gets knocked unconscious by the fireflies. And that's like kind of the last we see until he wakes up. So they did not do that part. And I I get why, because I think it adds a lot of extra elements to it, but I think it could have made it a little bit longer and then maybe um, also add a little bit more drama into them finding the fireflies and, you know, that whole situation of Joel waking up thinking that Ellie might actually be dead. Um, Whereas in this situation, it just kind of got ambushed and she got dragged away and he got knocked unconscious. There's one other part, you know, of the finale I do want to talk about before we get into season two, uh, what we know about season two and and obviously the awards conversation around this. But the finale did feature another callback to the video game with Ashley Johnson, who voices Ellie in the games, playing the character's mother in a flashback scene that showed Ellie's birth. And it also helped explain why she's immune from the mushroom heads, as I like to call them. <laughs> Shannon, you know, as someone who's obviously a big fan of, of the game, what did you think of, of Ashley Johnson's appearance and, and what we learned about Ellie? Oh, man, I loved it. That was awesome. I I kind of, I figured when they announced uh, Ashley Johnson was going to be in the show, I was like, immediately I texted my friend. I'm like, she's going to play Ellie's mother. I just know it. And I was right. <laughs> Um, and I think that was so perfect. That was the perfect casting choice. Uh, I thought that it was such a fun scene. I mean, as a fan of the video games, we never really knew why Ellie was immune. We never knew. So this was finally 
an explanation for the reason that we've been on this whole journey. Like we, we up until this point, you know, there was letters, there was clues, but there was never anything concrete of why she was immune. And this is was such a perfect way to kind of bring that all in. And especially using Ashley Johnson, who's always awesome. And she was just great. And that scene was awesome. It was 10 minutes, but like probably my favorite, one of my favorite scenes of the entire season. Cause it was just, it was perfect. You say that she's always awesome and you haven't even watched the entire series run of Growing Pains. So what are you even talking about? Always awesome. Some of us are OG Ashley Johnson fans. Darn it. Growing Pains forever. Oh, my gosh. All right. This, we have to take this fight offline. <laughs> yeah, she, she's she's a, 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 an old family friend of uh, one of my I think it was my second girlfriend. Oh so, yeah, this was around, what was the Margaret Cho show that uh, she was on way back when the, about the tennis thing? All-American Girl. I think she was on that too, right? I have Memories no idea. Hers? I don't know. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too busy trying to go with the with the degree of connection between her <laughs> yeah, and you weird. that she was yeah, a family yeah. friend of a long distant girlfriend. It's a little bit like uh, spa yeah. space balls. What is that? So what does that make us? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But. Okay, so getting back on track here, Shannon, you kind of teased a little bit that the doctor that Joel kills um, in this episode is going to have an effect on season two. What do we know so far about what the second season will encompass and what it won't? I mean, so they're being pretty cagey about what it's going to encompass. Um, but I mean, figuring, I mean, just looking at how faithful the first season was to you know, the first game, I'm imagining the second game is being pretty faithful. Uh, the second season being pretty faithful to the second game. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there'll be some departures like the Bill and Frank was a big departure from the game. Um, and I, I'm sure that, but any of the major narrative beats, I do not think will change because they have to happen in order for the events and the story to continue as it does and to change those would be to change the story completely, which doesn't sound like something that they want to do. I mean, I don't know how, how in depth you want me to get into those exact narrative beats <laughs> that no, are probably I, I, going to happen. Yeah. But I mean, I think, like, I think a little coyness is appreciated at least from, yeah, at least from but, me. <laughs> but at the same time, like, look, if season one was about Joel accepting this mission to get Ellie to the hospital and hopefully find a cure What's the trajectory of season two? Do we know yet, or do you have a do you have a, a a guess, an educated guess? I mean, so I think the second season will focus on Ellie's journey, thus you know continuing forward. Here, um, it's kind of going to be a shift. I think that something people have not maybe realized yet about Last of Us is that Joel is not the main character; Ellie is, and that is kind of going to be very apparent. I think in season two that narrative shift and, you know, the focus on her and how Joel's lie and what happened at the end of season one is going to affect her moving forward. And also everything that she's dealt with in her very short life so far, <laughs> like she's dealt with a lot and she's only like 14 at this point, but she will be, I mean, so it, the second game does start five years after the events of this. So she will be 19 um, in the second in the second season. If they if they go that route. And do we think, you know, I, I may obviously I'm married to a gamer who has also loved The Last of Us games and someone 
close to me that I may have just described gave me a heads up about a pretty major spoiler from the second game um, without revealing too much. Do we think that the cast as we know it will remain intact for the entirety of the second season? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, this is my advice for anybody who loves The Last of Us. Do not get attached to anybody because, uh, you know, things are going to happen. It's a post-apocalyptic world. It's messy. There's a lot that happens. I would say if you love a character, I mean, love them, but be wary that they might not last long. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Shannon, for not spoiling anything, but I did want to address that. But, you know, as we do in every one of these season in review segments, Dan, I want to start with you. What kind of Emmy consideration do you think we're going to see here for The Last of Us? I, I think it will be strong. I think that it's pretty... Pretty much all of the conversations about a eight or ten show drama series field tend to include Last of Us at this point. Though, of course, as we've talked about over and over again, HBO is going to have so many shows to be pushing. And while I think we assume that HBO is going to have four nominations in that category, they, they can't push everything equally. Um, I would still prefer to have Last of Us there than uh, House of the Dragon, personally. And then I feel like Pedro Pascal, everybody loves Pedro Pascal at this moment. He's he's the Internet's daddy or whatever he is at this particular moment. Um, and so I think that there's enough love for him for everything that I suspect he's probably a lock. And Bella Ramsey is probably has a good chance. I don't think she's anywhere near as as much of a lock. And then you start getting into a lot of the what are to me more interesting questions like, you know, will there be writing nominations, directing nominations, because there are the certain nominated certain episodes that have been very clearly the focus. And that's where you're going to get to. Will there be guest actor nominations for Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett? Will there be a guest actress nomination for Melanie Linsky for Storm Reid? And I think those will be the interesting questions. It, it, sort of the difference between is Last of Us going to get eight to 10 nominations, or is it going to get 24 nominations? I think that's kind of where the question is. If those episodes and all of those guest stars are in the hunt and actually get the nominations, then it could absolutely be set up for a massive haul of nominations. I mean, I mean, Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman both have to get nominations. I would love to see Melanie Linsky get an actress nomination for Yellow Jackets and a guest actress for Last of Us as well. But I think... To me, it the the question is, Bella's going to get nominated. She has to. To me, because she's as as Shannon indicated, she's the glue that holds this whole thing together. I think I think you're right. Uh, certainly about you know her being essential, and and to me, the idea of one of the two of them being nominated and not the other kind of sells the duo of it a little bit short. She's just a little bit less of a, a known and instantly beloved commodity. There were also initial people who, who weren't sure if she was right for the part and all of that. And so there were some things that people had to get over when it came to her. Whereas again, Pedro Pascal has been absolutely everywhere for months and he's got both this and the Mandalorian. And so, you know, and I don't think anyone is going to try making a rational claim that he should be nominated for the Mandalorian. I mean, he does the voiceover for the Mandalorian. Indeed. I don't even think he's in the suit at all uh, anymore. I, and this is absolutely true. But still, there were there were people who tried suggesting he could be in the race for a nomination in the first two seasons. I don't think those people were right. I'm not saying, but I'm saying it's the kind of thing that will keep him in people's minds for the next 
two months. So he's never going to go out of anyone's head. So I think he's I think he's extra safe. Um, also, it is I mean, nomination for Bella Ramsey or re-riot there. I said, uh, yeah, fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Leslie. <laughs> I just think it's the reality of the current TV landscape, though, that uh, and this is one of those very good things about the current TV landscape is that there are simply more great roles for women at this moment than there are men. It is a tougher field to break the lead actress field than to break the lead actor field. That's just that is just the nature of things. And yeah, I but it would it would surely not surprise me if they were both nominated. Yeah. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for, for joining us for this segment. And go ahead and tell the fine people where they can read all of your Last of Us coverage. Yeah, go. Um, my stories are on uh, the Daily Beast and the Daily Beast Obsessed, which is within the Daily Beast uh, website. So go check those out. Um, did a lot of really fun coverage on the season, um, especially the episode seven. I did a really nice deep dive into that with the director and the production designer. So. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon, and congratulations on cover on your coverage and the great Thank season. you. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Number four. Up next this week, you've heard us discuss a potential Writers Guild strike for the past couple of months on the show as both showrunners and execs have continued to touch on some of the key issues on both our podcast and, of course, on Twitter. This week, we are going to take an in-depth look at exactly what's on the table so far that we know as the WGA prepares to begin negotiations with the studios and streamers for a new contract. Joining us to break it all down is THR labor reporter Katie Kilkenny. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. When does the current WGA contract with the studios expire and what happens if there is another WGA strike? Yeah, so the the deal expires on May 1st. And if there is another strike, um, we can look at the last strike, which happened in 2007 to 2008, as an example for what could occur. Um, that strike was, of course, 100 days uh, long. So, you know, if there is a strike, we don't know how long it will go, but it ultimately cost the California economy $2.1 billion, according to the Milken Institute. Um, and it led to dozens of writers' overall deals being canceled, uh, writers being without pay for 100 days, of course. Um, multiple shows like Desperate Housewives, Lost, uh, being sort of curtailed, 30 Rock as well. Um, and uh, ultimately, it was a, a massive thing to happen in the industry. So that is what we could look forward to if this does come to that. 
Yeah. And of course, the last round of negotiations was three years ago. These things, these contracts are only three year deals. And this one was, you know, ever at the onset of the pandemic, this was the biggest issue in Hollywood. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and everyone was like, yeah, whatever we were negotiating for, fuck it, just pay us. We don't want to be, you know what I mean? It kind of changed everything. So, you know, now we've we've seen, at least if you're on Twitter and you follow a bunch of writers like we do, there have been so many writers and showrunners doing excellent threads on Twitter outlining some of the major issues. I've retweeted a bunch of them for for our listeners to go back and look if you want to look at my feed. But you can also... Talk, you know, a lot of them are talking about the same thing, right? The size of TV writers rooms, meaning how many people are on staff of the, you know, for the writers writing staff of a show, as well as the proliferation of mini rooms, which is a smaller writers room for a smaller period of time to, to get started on scripts before a potential series order. And sometimes you don't even get that series order. And you know, I read your interview this week with the the WGA's three chief negotiators and to hear them say it, it really does all come back to one thing and that's overall compensation. What were your big, you know, takeaways about the key issues that they're looking at from uh, after talking with them? Yes. Yeah, so as you, as you said, they were all about the compensation. Um, certainly many rooms was top of mind in that conversation. And, and that makes sense based off of what all writers seem to be talking about at this point in time. Raising wage floors as well is a big one. Um, They said, one of them said to me that the typical 3% wage increase that you usually get in union negotiations just isn't going to cut it this time around, both with the pressures coming from the streaming era as well as inflation. Um, And they were also talking about, um, you know, the size of TV writing rooms Um, the duration that writers are on writing rooms, in writing rooms. So those all seem to be really important things. And in addition, there was a Writers Guild bulletin that came out earlier this week where they really focused on the number of writers making minimums. That's basically just the lowest that they can be paid according to the contract. They had an interesting stat in there that in the 2013 to 2014 TV season, about a third of all writers were making minimums. Whereas in the 2021 uh, 2022 season, it was about half. So that's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, of course, the key issues here that we've seen since, you know, in the last decade here is that the episode orders are, you know, the, the days of the 22, 24 episode show is really gone. I mean, you have a, your stalwarts, right? Law and Order, Grey's Anatomy, that are going to get those. Yep. But as cable really introduced the 13 episode show, you look at the streaming model and now it's like, look, we were just talking about The Last of Us, right? Which is HBO, HBO Max. That was what, nine episodes, Dan? You know, we just talked about, you know, Swarm. You know, we're going to talk about Swarm next in, in the Critics Corner. That's seven episodes and and considered a closed-ended series. But again, it, there's there's the, the industry has changed so much so quickly in these in these past three years that the other question that, that I have too is, how, you know, you and you asked them this too in the interview, you know, how are these, are these negotiators looking at trying to future proof this deal? Because the way the industry is functioning now versus the way it might, it, what it might look like in three years is, could be night and day. Yeah. When I asked that question, um, David A. Goodman pretty much said, well, you can't really future proof a deal because you can't totally figure out where the industry is going to be going. But they did mention that something that they're focused on is streaming data transparency which they said is inevitably going to have to come up in some regard because of the fact that a lot of these SVOP platforms now have advertising supported um, business models where theoretically they'll have to uh, disclose some of that data to advertisers. 
Um, so that was certainly on their minds, as well as something that was really interesting that came up in their pattern of demands, which is like a list of general objectives for the negotiations, is that they want to have um, artificial intelligence produced material included in their contract. So clearly they're looking at things like ChatGPT they're looking ahead and they're like, look, we just need to like have this covered in our contract. So th those suggest the sort of, the sort of forward thinking areas of, of their strategy this time around. What is the process that they're currently in? Talk us through how these negotiators have been talking to writers and, and what the forums have been like to find out what are on what's on people's minds. Yeah, so they've been holding a series of meetings with writers. Um, they've been described to me as very lively, kind of like a rally. Um, but I've been told that's kind of generally the case with Writers Guild meetings. Um, and they've been kind of uh, laying out their case for what the state of the industry is, how these companies, while they are in cost-cutting mode, um, still have money, plenty of money to give to writers in, in the view of the Writers Guild. Um, and they've been telling them about their general priorities now, on Monday, they're going to go into negotiations with the AMPTP. They're going to present their opening arguments. And uh, from there, we'll have some bargaining sessions after that to see if they can close their differences, basically. So starting Monday, uh, this is really going to kick into high gear. And one of the interesting things, Leslie mentioned, you have a great interview with the uh, Writers Guild negotiations team, which is up on THR that everyone should check out. But there was a large changeover in the negotiating group because David Young, who was supposed to be the head of uh, contract talks, went on medical leave at the end of February. Is there any sense of how that, which seems like a pretty big deal at this particular time, is impacting things? Yeah, I think it has to have some sort of impact. It was a very sudden thing to occur. It was it happened just weeks before negotiations were set to begin. And his basically right hand, his assistant executive director, Ellen Stutzman, is stepping in. Um, you know, some things won't change. There will be the same leadership at the Guild um, in terms of like the president, vice president. The bargaining agenda is going to remain the same. The negotiating committee is going to remain the same. But there might be some differences tonally because David Young had this reputation, earned or unearned, of being kind of a fiery negotiator. Um, he was very divisive among certain people in the industry. And Ellen, um, while people who I've talked to don't know her as well, you know, she's been described to be as like calm, cool, and collected, very smart, has been at the Guild for 17 years. She's been in the room before. Um, so that could bring a difference to the talks, but it will be really interesting to see how she handles this. So we know that the first round of negotiations is going to start March 20th, but how far apart do you feel both sides are right now? It's a great question. I think we'll learn more after the first day of negotiations, our first few sessions, if the sides put out a statement. My sense is that the Writers Guild is looking for a steep increase in compensation and looking to potentially manage the number of writers in the writers' room. Historically, the companies have not... Uh, received well the idea of minimum numbers of people being employed um, within contracts. And they are all in cost-cutting mode. You know, Disney's Bob Iger said they're going to cut thousands of people this year. Um, there were significant layoffs last year at Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery. So um, my sense is, and again, this is just speculation at this part, but at this point, but, um, but they're going to be far apart. And, and one of the things that we've regularly talked about the past few weeks is the steps that studios and networks are taking to get out ahead of a potential strike and to find out what they're going to do if they're suddenly going to be without content. Uh, what is the position of the negotiators and, and the WGA on writers getting out ahead of a potential strike in this way? 
and I should just clarify really quickly before you respond here. It's not just writers doing this, but it's it's the studios and the streamers who are handing out these early renewals and asking writers, skip your hiatus, go straight through, deliver us a bunch of scripts, because if you strike, we can still produce all of your work. Yes. So Leslie's done some really good reporting in this regard. Um, when I asked the negotiators about this, they basically said, we are not going to get in the way of writers, you know, making good compensation at this point. So they said, you know, we think it's kind of futile because ultimately to make a good TV show, you need writers the entire run of the production of, t of TV shows. Um, that was their position. But I think it's a really interesting question because, um, you know, studios are stockpiling scripts. So are streamers. We know that. We know they're getting their writers' rooms in early. We know they're even looking at their filming schedules early because SAG-AFTRA and the DGA are going to... Uh, negotiate after the writers. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I thought that was an interesting response. You know, you did mention, obviously, now SAG uh, and the DGA, so that's the writer's branch and the director's branch is here. Was there any concern that they would go first or did they intentionally look to the WGA to go first and, and then model their contracts after based on what gains the writers get? So usually in past years, except for, I mean, the last time the DGA did not go first, was 2007-2008 when the writers struck. So this is the first time that they've done that since that year. So they are going after the writers. And um, the reason the DGA has said publicly is because they talked early with the studios, felt that the studios were not ready to address their key priorities. And so they felt that they would have the best leverage if they negotiated closer to their contract expiration date, which is June 30th. Um, SAG uh, usually doesn't go first. So that's kind of less of a point of interest, but the DGA one um, was an interesting move. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why they decided to go second after the Writers Guild. But we know what they have said publicly is that basically they couldn't make an early deal work out with the studios. So that's why they're doing this now. Uh, well, I assume that we are going to have you back on the podcast Hopefully not too many times, because that would mean that this is going on forever. But <laughs> I assume we will definitely want to have you back on the podcast when there is more that's actually taken place. So thank you so much for laying out the groundwork. And everyone should be following all of Katie's coverage on The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, you can follow it all at THR.com slash labor. Katie, thank you so much. Of course. Yes. Thank you. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with a Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Extrapolations debuting on Apple, Donald Glover and Janine Neighbors debut the full season of Swarm on Amazon, Bob Odenkirk is back at AMC in Lucky Hank, and Elvis enters the building at Netflix with the animated series Agent Elvis. Dan, what you got? As I like to say... Lots of TV, Leslie. Uh, I haven't gotten anywhere near extrapolations. God, between between the actual things that I've needed to watch for this week for reviews, plus a bunch of South by Southwest documentaries, plus slowly been getting my start watching my screeners of, of Yellow Jackets for season two. So, yeah, extrapolations has just not been in the cards, but eh. <laughs> so. As for the other things, uh, let's start with the Friday premieres. Um, let's start with Agent Elvis. Why not? Because it's sort of amusing. It is an animated comedy that posits the notion, what if Elvis Presley was uh, actually working as a spy for a covert government agency? Um, 
sure, why not? Uh, and you know it's true because it is co-created by Priscilla Presley, who also voices herself in the series. Um, as I said in my review, anyone who knows me probably knew I was going to be at least somewhat in the tank for this one the minute they saw that Elvis's uh, chimpanzee Scatter plays a major role. Uh, Scatter is Elvis's primary sidekick in the series, voiced by Tom Kenny, but mostly doing a lot of monkey noises. Um, and yes, I know chimpanzees are not monkeys technically, so don't no need no need for uh, for various fans of simian accuracy to to come get me. Um, but yes, so it is a show that has a chimpanzee sidekick who spends a lot of time uh, masturbating and firing a gun and snorting coke. So that's always going to be amusing. But honestly, what I liked most about the show was how accurate it is. And that is a ridiculous thing to say about a show in which Elvis Presley is a government agency agent with a uh, gun firing chimpanzee as his sidekick. But Elvis did, of course, in real life, have a, a rescue chimp named Scatter who had a variety of alcohol-fueled incidents um, in various Elvis Presley homes. So Scatter is a real character. And a lot of the background incidents of the show are based on real Elvis Presley movies, real Elvis Presley concert events, uh, various things tied to Elvis's past and the history of the 60s and 70s. Like, I watch a lot of scripted shows that are based on historical events, and I'm pretty much constantly Googling things and going, okay, was that a thing that actually happened? And I'm constantly being annoyed when shows take dramatic liberties. And this was almost the exact opposite, where I was frequently being very amused by the things that the show actually gets right. And some of them I knew vague details about. There's an episode, for example, that's set against the backdrop of the Black Panthers embassy in Algeria and how Timothy Leary ended up getting asylum there briefly. And it's a it's a real historical thing that is not known by many people, but it's a backdrop of an episode of this television show, which I get a kick out of. And then there are things that are much more obvious, like the famous uh, Nixon Elvis meeting at the White House. That is the basis for a full episode, etc. So I liked a lot of that. Uh, Elvis is voiced by Matthew McConaughey, who basically is just being Matthew McConaughey. There's no there's no effort to do a specific Elvis voice or no more or less than Matthew McConaughey has always been kind of playing Matthew McConaughey as Elvis to some degree over the years. Uh, you know, the show's a little bit funny. The show's a little bit exciting. Uh, but I, the things I latched onto were how many historical details were, if not exactly right, were in the vicinity of correct in ways that I found funny. Like, did Elvis and Robert Goulet have a have a rivalry? Yes, they did. And Robert Goulet is here, voiced by Ed Helms, and very funny. So... Uh, I, I liked a lot of things about <laughs> Agent Elvis. Maybe not necessarily the things that Netflix is hoping will get people in the door, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> liking things is still liking things, and and someone can take some solace in that. Um, on to things that are very interesting, but probably shouldn't be spoiled a lot, and so I'm going to tiptoe here. Uh, Amazon Swarm is a seven-part series from Janine Neighbors and Donald Glover. And the less you know about it, probably the better. I, I think that is the easiest way to put it. And Amazon has been very precious about what 
critics are able to reveal in their reviews. And some of the things actually actively handicapped those of us who attempted to write about the show, because there are certain things that you really can't describe the show without saying. But there are there's at least one pretty big guest star slash cameo that people really shouldn't have spoiled. People will on the interwebs will spoil it almost immediately. And, you know, I'm sorry, but I will not be the one to spoil it. I the one cameo that I really enjoyed. It's both funny as a cameo and I thought a really surprisingly good performance. So that is that is all I will say about that. But anyway, the premise, the premise of the show is that Dominique Fishback, who people will know from uh, The Deuce and from the uh, the earlier David Simon New Jersey real estate show and from Judas and the Black Messiah and from the Ptolemy Gray show on Apple, etc. Uh, she plays Dre, a very, very socially awkward young woman who is a tremendous fan of a pop star who has an awful lot of similarities to Beyonce, but definitely isn't Beyonce. And... Her fandom goes into obsession with, let's just say, very dark and very violent complications. Describing the show in general borders on impossible because it is sometimes an extremely violent and disturbing and harrowing show. I also found it extraordinarily funny at times. Uh, and part of why I found it as funny as I did is because Dominique Fishback is is wonderful here. She is so good. It is such a committed performance. And it's a performance that's so committed to how all over the place the show is. So the performance, some episodes she's entirely sympathetic. Some episodes she seems kind of scary and calculating. Other episodes she's just absolutely hilarious. Uh, and they all kind of fit together in a very interesting characterization. Mostly the other people in the show are our guest stars and, uh, you know, Chloe Bailey plays her sister and has probably the most developed of the supporting characters, but it's, it's really also basically a cameo, but the first episode has Rory Culkin. He was featured for a couple seconds in the, in the trailer. So I'm not spoiling anything. Paris Jackson is in uh, the second or the third episode also spoiled in the trailer. So I'm not spoiling anything. And I thought Paris Jackson was actually fairly funny. Uh, Rory Culkin is pretty much pointless, but not as a person. I'm sure he has a point as a person. He's just pointless in the show. Totally different things. Uh, um, so it's not like it's an ensemble cast. It's it's this is the Dominique Fishback show, uh, but it's really good. The episodes are all between 28 and 38 minutes. It goes by pretty quickly. Uh, Leslie, I know you watched it all in a couple sittings, but felt like it would be a disturbing show to binge. Uh, what would you say would be the right way to watch this? Not at night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would do maybe two episodes in a sitting and just make sure I would probably do episodes of like The Simpsons in between just as like a palate <laughs> cleanser. Because it, it does, I mean, I didn't find it nearly as, as funny as, as you did at times. It, to me, it was just really fucked up and disturbing. So, it, it so is. small pieces, save, <laughs> savor the binge and do it, you know, like I said, have, have some, uh, do some Ted Lasso in between there. Even the bits and pieces that I thought were hilarious are absolutely dark and twisted. There's no question. It's not it's not a bright show. And I think that Ted Lasso is actually a very good uh, show to sandwich between episodes because Ted Lasso is, of course, as as bright and fizzy and largely optimistic as it is. Uh, as for the overall show, it, 
I, I'm still chewing over how much I think it really has to say about fandom and a lot of contemporary things. It's very much a show of the moment. And a lot of the things that are in the background, the issues are very identifiably the things we talk about today, whether it's the general nature of fandom, how social media encourages fandom and encourages maybe the worst sides of fandom, uh, et cetera. So a lot of it's very current whether it's perceptive is something else, but I, in, in general, I enjoyed the show though, largely for, uh, Dominique Fishback, who I, I think is, is great. And it's just such a fantastic vehicle for her. Um, Leslie's idea about watching a couple episodes at a time. I think it's a good idea for your sanity, but truly, I think a lot of the things in the show, you're better off not knowing going in. And the longer you wait, the better the chance that the internet is going to spoil them for you. So, But also, even if you know what's coming, like who's coming and, and, the, and the big cameo that you're referring to, Dan, it didn't, didn't take me out of it. And I knew it was coming because we had talked about it. And then I got to it and I was like, oh, yeah, that is that person. Um, but it, like the show is so unique in, in what it is that you are just Im like immersed in this world right away. Like... But it's also like a tough world to stay in for an extended period of time, especially if you're someone like me who doesn't do uh, enjoy watching a lot of like super dark and heavy things. So entirely fair. Um, and then the last thing to talk about, uh, and it's it's generally a lighter show, though it has some darker elements, but well, not darker than Swarm, but darker than Ted Lasso, maybe. Uh and there was a lot of darkness in Ted Lasso. So what am I even talking about? Uh, is AMC's Lucky Hank, uh, which premieres on Sunday and is based on the novel Straight Man by Richard Russo. And it was adapted by Paul Lieberstein, who you, of course, know as Toby from The Office. But he was also a writer and showrunner on The Office. And, uh, and Aaron Zellman, who has a darker list of credits to his name, including damages and whatnot. Uh, the book is a dark comedy, and the TV show is as well, uh, which I think should allow Bob Odenkirk to not be competing with himself in Better Call Saul for Emmy contention. But he's really good. He plays the head of a of a Pennsylvania Rust Belt uh, college slash university who is stuck in a rut. He wrote a novel. 30 years earlier, hasn't written a second book. His father is much more famous. He's stuck as the head of the, of the English department, dealing with the egos of the people around him. And when he goes on a rant to one of his students about his mediocrity, the students, his own mediocrity, his characters, and the university's mediocrity, things go viral. Uh, the first episode sticks very much, I would say, to the shape of the book. And it's very much focused around the Hank character. And in the book, the Hank character's perspective is, is the book. You couldn't have turned the book into an ongoing TV series. And that's what this is. It, it had to be, to some degree, expanded and elongated. And the second episode is heavily about that. It's about making sure that the ensemble feels as if they're important parts of the cast which means we're following along with them. We're, we're leaving Hank's character behind. I thought a lot of the secondary storylines in the second episode were not, 
particularly interesting. They were a little on the generic side, a little on the sitcom side, even though a lot of the supporting actors in the cast, I think, are very good. Um, Murray Enos plays Hank's wife. I think this is a very good part for her because she gets to smile and be happy a lot, which Murray Enos's past has not usually been about. If you know her from uh, The Killing or from Hannah, you'll be surprised to see that she can smile and make jokes and be relaxed. It's it's pleasant to watch. Uh, you have Diedrich Bader as Hank's horndog best friend. And then a lot of the teachers are recognizable and semi-recognizable people. Cedric Yarborough, who uh, who made me miss Speechless, because uh, Speechless was a great show, and he was great on it. Um, he's part of the cast. Suzanne Cryer is recognizable from a bunch of stuff. My favorite of the supporting characters, uh, supporting actors, was uh, Shannon DeVito. Uh, DeVito. DeVito. DeVito? Yes. D-E-V-I-D-O. Shannon, I want to make sure I get her name as right as I can, because she was really my second favorite part of the show after after Odenkirk. Uh, she's terrific. She's very, very funny, um, and I hope they give her more to do. Uh, she's only a guest star. It's a big, big cast. So, uh, But it's mostly, even still, the show is mostly a vehicle for, for Bob Odenkirk, uh, who is very funny, very good. There is none of the, the kind of background smarminess of Saul Goodman, uh, but it's also not the sort of sad, forlorn sincerity of Jimmy McGill. So it's it's a totally different character, and I can understand why he wanted to do this. And I think that the pieces are all here for this to be a very good show, and I thought that the pilot was was really solid and really good. I thought the second episode was a little bit less good but I understood why it was doing the things it was doing. It was trying to make sure, okay, here's the version of the show that could actually run six ep uh, six seasons as opposed to an adaptation of the book, which would probably be six episodes. So um, I, I will be curious to see more of it. I wish we could have had three or four or five episodes uh, in order to write my review. Um, so instead, I'm kind of mixed on it. And either the next three or four would be like, okay, clearly they don't know how to expand this world or, okay, they get it. I don't know yet, but I'm curious. It's, it's worth checking out. And, uh, it's, it's an amusing, uh, companion to the chair, uh, which was the last show we had about the head of an English department at a small college getting into trouble with uh, their faculty. That was of course the Sandra O Netflix show, which was kind of formally unusual because it was a, uh, six episode half hour show that was announced as a limited show. But then when it didn't get picked up again, people said it was canceled, even though it was announced as a limited show. But we did have Amanda Pete on the podcast. Leslie, when did we have Amanda Pete on the podcast? That would be episode 133 from August 20th, 2021. 2021. Excellent. Wow. Long time ago. Uh, so yeah, so so to go back through these things again, Agent Elvis is fun, and you can have some fun looking to see what's actually real in what is a very ridiculous and outlandish show. Uh, the Swarm, go in knowing as little as possible, but also know that it's a show that will make you uncomfortable and a little bit disturbed, but that Dominique Fishback is fantastic. Uh, it is a limited series, so... Uh, Dominique Fishback has been sort of in conversations for Emmy and Oscar nominations in the past and hasn't gotten them. I, I will be banging the drum for her to get an Emmy nomination for this. And Lucky Hank, uh, a, a lot like the Richard Russo book at first, second episode, a little bit more about trying to expand it, premieres on Sunday, really good vehicle for Bob Odenkirk. We'll have to see going forward who else it's a good vehicle for.
Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We're happy to hear your questions, comments, concerns, etc. Leslie is, of course, at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.